This is a Scream Queen production. These violent delights have violent ends. Violent ends. Violent ends. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Jen Carpenter, and this is Violent Ends. Well, hi. How is everyone today? I am a changed woman since we last talked. Why, you ask? Because I had the great honor of being present for the religious experience that was the Taylor Swift concert in Detroit on June 10th. And I'll tell you all about that at the end of the show because in true gen fashion, it includes a lot of chaos and a near-death experience, just like everything you want in a good story. But we've got some serious business to attend to first. Whether you love or hate T-Swift, there's simply no denying that the spectacle that is the era's tour is historic. If you were there, you know that. Just, just once in a lifetime, right? So I thought today that we'd talk about another historic event that took place at a major Detroit sports arena involving supremely talented women. How's that for an extremely specific tie-in? So Taylor played at Ford Field, which is home of our beloved, beleaguered Detroit Lions. The rare domed stadium, one of only 10 in all of the NFL, can seat up to 80,000 fans depending on the event and the layout. For Taylor, the crowd was upwards of 60,000, which is way too many fucking people in one place. Next door to Ford Field is Comerica Park, home of the Detroit Tigers. Little Caesars Arena, where the Pistons and the Red Wings play, is across the street. But this is the new class, right? These big, like, billion-dollar state-of-the-art stadiums didn't exist until the 2000s. In the before, it was the Pontiac Silverdome, Tiger Stadium, Joe Louis Arena, the Palace of Auburn Hills, and Cobo Arena. All long gone now. But the latter... Kobo Arena is where today's Twisted Tale takes place. Kobo Arena and the adjoining Kobo Hall were built on top of Michigan's own Plymouth Rock, the exact site where Antoine de la Mothe Cadillac landed in July 1701. He claimed the uncharted territory for King Louis of France and the city we now know as Detroit was born. Kobo Arena was built in 1960 with seating for 12,000. It started out as a home for the Detroit Pistons, and it went on to host hundreds, nay thousands, of events over the years, including concerts by Jimi Hendrix, The Doors, Queen, David Bowie, Prince, The Rolling Stones, and many, many more. On June 23, 1963, following the Detroit Walk to Freedom Civil Rights March, Martin Luther King Jr. delivered the very first rendition of his I Have a Dream speech at Kobo Arena. I did not know that. Did you guys know that? Because I didn't know that. So, like I said, a lot of history and not all of it is good. Starting with the name. Kobo Hall was named after Albert Kobo, the mayor of Detroit from 1950 until his death in office in 1957. Nothing juicy there, just your standard run-of-the-mill heart attack. Kobo ran on a platform of racial segregation, promising to stop the Negro invasion of white neighborhoods. He opposed and derailed public housing projects. He stacked his staff with other racist fucks who were only interested in serving the white community, was hella corrupt, and was just not a good dude to have leading any city, but especially one with such a large population of people of color. So... In the 2010s, when renovations were being done to Kobo, the hall was completely overhauled while the arena was torn down completely and replaced with an atrium and a ballroom. The decision was made to rename the venue. Much like all of the other big, beautiful facilities in Detroit, the naming rights were sold to a big corporation, and it's now known as Huntington Place most famous for being the home of the North American International Auto Show. 
But in January of 1994, it was still Kobo Arena, and it was being used as a practice facility for the U.S. Figure Skating Championships, which were being held next door at Joe Louis Arena, or the Joe, as we called it. And that, friends, is where our story begins. Before we get into it, though, I do need to thank today's sponsor. I have always been honest with you guys about my anxiety and the wicked insomnia that plagues me nightly. So I want to tell you guys about something I've been doing lately to help with some of that. Microdosing. Microdose gummies have actually been helping me fall and stay asleep. And I'm telling you, I feel like a new woman these days. That's why I'm so happy to announce that our show today is sponsored by Microdose Gummies, which deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. As you all know, I suffer from a lack of sleep and an overabundance of stress, and it can be hard to find a product that will help me to calm down, relax, and start breathing without making it difficult to get back up and get back to work when the time comes. But since I've started taking a gummy an hour before I go to bed each night, I'm able to fall asleep easily without all that background noise and drama that usually accompanies me trying to get some rest. And in the morning, I don't feel groggy or weighted down, just well-rested and ready to start my day. Now, here's the best part. Microdose is available nationwide. To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com and use code VIOLENTENDS to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Links can be found in the show description, but again, that's microdose.com and code VIOLENTENDS. And as always, be sure to tell them I sent you. All right, buckle up, buttercups. You're in for a wild ride. Please don't cancel me for this. I know this will sound like blasphemy to some of you, but I have to speak my truth here. I don't give a shit about the Olympics. I don't watch them. I don't care who wins. I don't find them exciting in any way. I have nothing but respect for the very, very talented athletes who participate, but it's just not my thing, and I'm so sorry to have to be the one to tell you that. The exception to this rule, of course, was the 1994 Winter Olympics, held from February 12th to February 27th, 1994, of course, um, because even at the age of 13, which I was at the time, I loved me a good scandal. And I, like the rest of the world, was dying to see the face-off between Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding, a shocking, too-wild-to-be-believed drama that began right here in little old Michigan a month earlier. So this was confusing to me because remember, the Olympics are not my thing, but I'm going to try to explain it as simply as possible so as not to confuse myself. According to the Google, the number of skaters that a country gets to enter into the Olympics is based on their performance at the World Figure Skating Championships the year before. So the 1993 World Figure Skating Championships were held in March of 1993 in Prague. And while the U.S. won zero medals, a shocking change from two years earlier when they won all the medals, they did earn themselves two spots at the 1994 Winter Olympics. The top performers at Worlds from the U.S. were 23-year-old Nancy Kerrigan, who took fifth overall, and 15-year-old Lisa Irvin, who came in 13th. The gold medal that year went to 15-year-old Oksana Bayul from Ukraine, Silver went to 19-year-old Surya Bonali from France, and bronze went to 17-year-old Chen Lu from China. So, it's March of 1993. The 1994 Winter Olympics are less than a year away. The U.S. has just won two spots in the women's figure skating competition at the Olympics, but those two spots don't just automatically go to the skaters that secured the spots for the team. The winners of the spots on the Olympic team are determined by the U.S. Figure Skating Championships, which were held in Detroit in January of 1994, the month before the Olympics. So you do worlds to determine how many spots you get, 
and then you do the U.S. championships the month before the Olympics to decide who gets the spots. With the legendary Christy Yamaguchi newly retired from skating, the Ice Princess throne was wide open, and the two skaters with the best chance to snag it were Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding, who, aside from being two of the best skaters on the planet, could not have had less in common. Nancy Ann Kerrigan was born on October 13, 1969 in Stoneham, Massachusetts, a smallish town with a population of just under 25,000, about nine miles north of Boston, but is best known for for being the hometown of Nancy Kerrigan. That's what it's known for. Um, A couple of interesting facts I found about Stoneham. It has a siren that sounds every day at 9 a.m. and 9 p.m., and absolutely the fuck not to that. I would move so fast. It also has a tradition of giving things really simple names, like Spot Pond and Cheese Rock and Bear Hill. (laughs) I don't know why I found that so funny, but I found that funny. Nancy is the youngest child and only daughter of Daniel and Brenda Kerrigan, She has two older brothers, Michael and Mark. Her father was a welder, and her mother was a homemaker. Despite the way I always remember Nancy being portrayed in the media growing up, like this wealthy, polished, fancy ice dancer, Nancy's family was actually a very modest means. She grew up watching her two brothers play hockey, and when she was six, she fell in love with ice skating. She started taking private lessons when she was eight, and she won her first competition, the Boston Open, when she was nine. Nancy's mother, Brenda, was legally blind and unable to work, so Nancy's father worked two, sometimes three jobs to pay for Nancy's skating lessons. He worked the Zamboni at the local rink to pay for her ice time. Nancy remembers her dad like coming home from work at the end of a long day, sitting down with the family long enough to eat dinner, and then heading off to job number two. In 1987, when Nancy was 17, she reached her first major achievement in the skating world, fourth place at the U.S. Figure Skating Championships on the junior level. And then every year, she just got better and better. In 1991, 21-year-old Nancy placed third at the U.S. Figure Skating Championships in the ladies' singles category behind Christy Yamaguchi, who took second, and a very rough around the edges, not even just rough around the edges, like rough all over, through and through, um, 20-year-old Tanya Harding, who was taking the ice skating world by storm in a very strange way, but we'll get to old T-Hard in a minute here. So a month after the U.S. championships, this trio of ice princesses won the top spots again, this time with Christy Yamaguchi in first, Tanya Harding in second, and Nancy Kerrigan again in third. This was the first time that any country had completely swept the medals at the World Championships, so this was a really big deal. At the 1992 Winter Olympics in Albertville, France, Christy Yamaguchi took home the gold and then promptly retired. Go out on top, girl. Yes, I agree. Nancy took home the bronze at her first Olympics outing, but T-Hard was nipping right at her heels, and she came in fourth. And who was this Tanya chick with her fried blonde, frizz puff hair, atrocious makeup, and hideous costumes? I'll tell ya. Tanya Maxine Harding was born on November 12, 1970 in Portland, Oregon. Portland is known for enough things that they are typically able to hide the fact that they birthed Tanya Harding. Tanya was the only child of Lavana Golden and her fifth husband, Albert Harding, although she does have three much older half-siblings on her mother's side. Tanya's father was in poor health and had a hard time holding down a job, so he mostly just worked like odd part-time jobs here and there. It was Lavana's waitressing gig that paid the bills. So riddle me this, like just like the inaccurate way that I remember Nancy being portrayed as some like Richie Rich, Everything I've read and watched about Tanya says she was primarily raised by her mother, sometimes even going so far as to make it look like Lavana was basically a single mother raising her daughter alone. But Tanya's parents were married until Tanya was 16. And if her dad barely worked and her mom worked overtime, 
wouldn't she have spent most of her time with her dad? Like, make that narrative make sense for me. According to Tanya, she loved the shit out of her dad, and she hated her mom, who openly abused her at home, in public, whenever, wherever. Tanya started taking ice skating lessons when she was just three years old. Her mother hand-sewed her costumes and paid for her lessons with her tips, while Tanya worked at the rink to pay for her ice time. So this narrative about Nancy and Tanya coming from such different backgrounds, in some ways it's true, but as far as like means and opportunity, it was pretty much an even playing field. They both grew up poor and had parents that struggled and sacrificed so that they could pursue their common passion, ice skating. The Hardings moved around a lot. Tanya was at a new school every year, so she really was never able to make friends. According to her, she'd lived in 13 different homes by the time she was in fifth grade. In 1986, when she was 15, Tanya called the police to report her 26-year-old half-brother, Chris Davison, for molesting, sexually harassing, and terrorizing her, something she claimed began when she was very young. Creepy Chris, as Tanya called him, was arrested, convicted, and sent to prison. That same year, Tanya placed sixth at the U.S. Figure Skating Championships. She also met and fell in love with the man who would go on to become her first husband and ruin her entire life, Jeff Galuli. I don't know how to really pronounce his last name, but that's how we're pronouncing it today. In 1987, when she was 16, Tanya's parents, who stood by her brother, by the way, and tried to stop Tanya from pressing charges against him, for molesting her most of her life, divorced after 19 years of marriage. The way Tanya explains it, she just came home one day, her mom was gone, all their furniture, all their shit was gone. It was just her, her dad, and an empty house. Also in 1987, Tanya took fifth at the U.S. Figure Skating Championships. The year after that, in 1988, 17-year-old Tanya dropped out of high school and got her GED, Creepy Chris was released from prison and, very shortly after, was killed in a still-unsolved hit-and-run. Tanya did not go to his funeral. That same year, Tanya took fifth again at the U.S. Figure Skating Championships. On March 18, 1990, 19-year-old Tanya married her high school sweetheart, Jeff Galuli, who was three years her senior, but this was no fairy tale romance. Jeff was controlling and abusive. His and Tanya's relationship was very on and off even after they got married, and the whole thing was just super, super toxic. But Tanya poured herself into her skating, and in 1991, she shocked the world when she won gold at the U.S. Figure Skating Championships after landing a triple axle jump. She was the first American woman and only the second woman in the world to successfully execute, execute, execute this complicated maneuver. I can't even say the word, and she can jump in the air and spin around three and a half times before she lands, so I don't know why I'm over here talking shit. Um, she did it again at the World Championships a month later, where she took home silver, and just like that, she was a star. From 1991 to 1994, Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding, who were only a year apart in age, traveled together, roomed together, trained together, and competed against each other. The very definition of frenemies, right? So according to Tanya, who did not have a strong network of family and friends, the two were really good friends. According to Nancy, who had a wonderfully supportive family and group of friends, they were not not friends, but they weren't friends. They were acquaintances and above all else, competitors. So by 1992, Nancy and T-Hard were neck and neck at every competition, trading wins back and forth like Pokemon cards. Do people even trade Pokemon cards anymore? Because aren't those things like super fucking expensive and hard to find now? Or do we, or do you all just like play the Pokemons on your phone? I know a lot of you do that. I know a lot of you do that still. I don't. I'm not a I'm not a Pokemoner. Okay, off track. Sorry. As far as talent, Nancy and Tanya were equals, but in the public eye, Nancy was the new ice princess following Christy Yamaguchi's exit from the game. 
She had Vera Wang making her costumes and was getting fat endorsement deals. Meanwhile, Tanya was still very much the outcast she'd been her entire life. Who wanted to eat the same cereal or wear the same makeup as Tanya Harding? (laughs) Nobody. As a young girl who would have been targeted with those ads at that age? Nobody. Uh, Nancy was poised, professional, and polished. Everything the world expected an ice skater to be. Tanya was abrasive, off-putting, and honestly gave off this like secondhand embarrassment vibe that I still feel when I watch clips or interviews with her. Like, <laughs> just so embarrassing. While neither girl had a smooth path to the ice, see what I did there, Nancy found her place in that world, while Tanya never did. Following the 1992 Winter Olympics, where Nancy came in third and T-Hard came in fourth, the Olympic Committee decided to make a change in the schedule of the Winter Olympics. So instead of there being four years until the next contest, there were only two. There would be another Winter Olympics in 1994. And then after that, it was back to every four years. Don't ask me. I don't know why they did this. I just know that they did. So as Nancy Kerrigan and T-Hard prepared for the Olympic trials before they'd even caught their breath following the last round, both girls kind of fell off a bit. Uh, Maybe a bit of like the, I'm the best, I don't need to train as hard, maybe a bit of burnout, but also, in Tanya's case at least, some of that hard knock life. In March of 1993, Tanya filed a restraining order against her husband of nearly three years following a domestic violence incident that brought the police out to the house due to a report of shots fired. By August, Tanya and Jeff were divorced, though their relationship continued to be on and off. At the 1993 U.S. Figure Skating Championships in January of 93, Nancy took the gold while Tanya came in fourth behind Nancy, Lisa Irvin, and Tanya Kwiatkowski. I definitely didn't pronounce that right, so I apologize. I just, it's hard. It's a lot of letters that don't normally belong together. So good good turnout for Nancy, not great for Tanya. But then at the World Championships, not even two months later, the event that was so important because it determined how many spots the U.S. would get at the 94 Winter Olympics, Nancy came in fifth and Tanya didn't place at all. I'm going to be completely honest here. I couldn't even find proof that Tanya was there like I'm sure she was. But I looked for articles about her at the 93 Worlds, and I couldn't find any. So I don't know what happened, if she didn't even make it to Worlds, if she didn't go, or if she just did that poorly. I'm not sure. But she did not place at the 93 Worlds. Nancy's reaction to this disappointing showing was to go to a sports therapist, I think that's what they're called, and work through the psychology of what was going wrong, while also doubling down on training and making sure she was in top form by the 1994 U.S. Championships, which would determine who was going to the Olympics. Tanya, meanwhile, continued to be weighed down by Jeff Galuli, was drinking and smoking and partying, and was not taking her training as seriously as she should have been. Which explains why, when she was supposed to compete in a pre-qualifying competition for the U.S. championships in her hometown of Portland, she was all smiles to the media talking about how excited she was. But behind the scenes, she requested an exemption to be allowed into nationals without competing in the pre-qualifying event. Like, I'm Tanya Harding. Just send me to nationals. Do I really have to do this pre-qualify nonsense? In reality, she probably wasn't ready because her exemption request was denied. But then a curious thing happened. An anonymous caller made a death threat against Tanya. They called the venue where this event was being held and made a death threat against Tanya Harding. So the event was postponed which resulted in her getting that exemption after all. Curious, no? So before we head into 1994 and the terrible awful that was done to Miss Nancy, I do want to thank today's other sponsor. This summer, HelloFresh is here to take the work out of eating well. Reach your goals with delicious, calorie-smart, and protein-smart lunch and dinner options plus new vegan recipes from America's number one meal kit. 
need dinner ready like now, look for quick and easy recipes on the HelloFresh menu, including fast and fresh options ready in just 15 minutes or less. Whether you're looking to eat healthier or prepare dinner with a quickness, or both, HelloFresh has you covered. Nobody wants to spend their summer cooped up inside at the grocery store or in the kitchen slaving over a hot stove all night. I love that HelloFresh delivers everything I need and takes the dreaded what's for dinner debate right off the table. The ingredients are fresh and the recipes are delicious. And did I mention less trips to the grocery store? I really hate going shopping, if you can't tell. Go to HelloFresh.com slash VIOLENTENDS16 and use code VIOLENTENDS16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. Again, that's 16 free meals plus free shipping at HelloFresh.com slash VIOLENTENDS1616, promo code VIOLENTENDS16. And be sure to tell them I sent you. All right, let's talk about January 6th, 1994, (laughs) January 6th, 1994. We will not be talking about that other January 6th around here, even though there are way too many Michigan connections. Okay, okay, bye. The U.S. Figure Skating Championships, sorry, I'm still climbing out of that landmine. Um, The U.S. Figure Skating Championships were held at Joe Louis Arena from January 4th through January 8th with the Ladies Singles Competition scheduled for January 7th. Kobo Arena, located next door to the Joe, was used as a practice facility. There was a lot on the line. Only the first and second place winners would be moving on to the Winter Olympics. Now, keep in mind, Nancy was 24 and Tihard was 23 at this point. If one or both of them didn't make it to the 94 Olympics, they wouldn't have another chance until 98 when they'd be 28 and 27, which is pretty old in the ice skating world, unfortunately. So I'm sure in a lot of ways, they both considered this their last shot at Olympic gold. Tanya had an early afternoon practice, after which she went up to her room and took a nap. Nancy's practice was a bit later. She wore a simple but very pretty white little leotard, I don't know what the fuck to call it, practice dress. It had like these long sleeves, obviously the short little skirt. (laughs) Could you imagine, could you imagine watching people try to figure skate in long dresses? That would be... Hilarious, honestly. We should, somebody should do that. So she just looked, you know, like very regal, very snow white, very much living up to her ice princess reputation. She finished up her practice just after 2 30 p.m., and there's video of her walking off the ice and through this like curtained partition. And then fucking mayhem, or as it's known today, the whack heard round the world. I don't know who named it that. I feel like there were probably better names, but that's what it's called. So this video, filmed by a news crew, um, cuts off as Nancy's walking off the ice and through the partition, and then it picks back up just seconds later. And now we're on the other side of the partition. Um, In this corridor, Nancy is on the ground, surrounded by people, clutching her leg and screaming. She's in shock, everyone's confused, and nobody knows what the hell just happened. Nancy just keeps crying, why? Why? I can't even get like the guttural why right, but yeah, we've all seen it. We've all heard it, right? Now, she's been mocked and ridiculed over her reaction relentlessly, but let me just say, as someone who has been injured badly on many an occasion, Stabbed by an ice skate once even. You immediately go into, if not like full-blown shock, at least a mild version of it. And you kind of start thinking about all the ways that this injury that you can just feel in your soul is very serious. Um, All the ways that it's going to impact your life immediately and long-term. Not to mention the pain. And I can't imagine the thoughts going through the mind of a professional ice skater who's a favorite for Olympic gold, 
the day before she's supposed to compete at nationals and a month before the Olympics, who's just had her fucking knee bashed in. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is leave Nancy alone. In the middle of this chaotic scene, Nancy's father cuts through the crowd, scoops his daughter up in his arms, and carries her away. She's rushed to the hospital while security looks for a six-foot-tall white male in a black leather jacket holding a police baton who was spotted running away from the scene by multiple witnesses. But by the time the search began, the man was nowhere to be found. He was clearly in a hurry to escape as he head-butted a glass door to get out. At the hospital, the news wasn't as bad as it could have been, as it was intended to be. Nancy had been hit on the backside of her right knee, her landing knee, so nothing was broken or torn, but there was damage to the quadricep tendon. She suffered severe bruising and swelling as well as fluid on the knee. She would recover, but certainly not in time to compete the following day, which was the whole point. As the footage of Nancy's attack made its way around the world, remember, this is pre-the internet as we know it today, um, so information did not travel as quickly, but this, this traveled pretty fucking fast. And one reporter cheekily remarked, does anyone know where Tanya was when this happened? But despite all of her flaws, and there were many, no one really believed that Tanya Harding had Nancy Kerrigan attacked the day before they competed at the U.S. Championships. I mean, who would do a thing like that? The attack immediately brought to mind another attack on a world-famous female athlete just months earlier. Tennis pro Monica Seles was stabbed during a tennis match in Hamburg, Germany on April 30, 1993. Her assailant was an obsessed fan of one of her opponents, Steffi Graf. The assailant stabbed her in the shoulder, making it impossible for her to play tennis until she healed. Nancy was hit in the leg, with the obvious intention being that she wouldn't be able to skate for nationals or the Olympics. So there was definitely a parallel there. Authorities also looked into a crazed fan of Nancy's in Ontario who'd sent her threatening letters, and Ontario is right across the Detroit River from Cobo Arena, just like a little hop, skip, and jump away. Border patrol, border control in 1994 was not what it is now, so very easy to go back and forth. As authorities worked to identify Nancy's attacker, the U.S. Figure Skating Association was scrambling to figure out what the fuck they were going to do. Their prize skater was injured the day before the competition that decided who was going to the Olympics, which were only a month away themselves, and their number two skater was under suspicion for the attack, even if only in the court of public opinion at that point. It was determined that Nancy would be given a waiver. Doctors said it was likely that she'd be healed enough to compete in the Olympics. So she got the golden ticket that she very likely would have earned for herself had she not been attacked, which meant that only the gold medal winner of the U.S. championships would be going to the Olympics with Nancy. And T-Hard was up for that challenge. She won the gold, which meant that the two most talked about women in the ice skating world... Honestly, maybe even just in the world, world at that point, we're going to Lillehammer. But not before a whole lot more drama unfolded. On January 11th, just five days after the attack on Nancy Kerrigan, the FBI received a tip that Tanya's ex-husband Jeff Galuli and her security guard, who's also Jeff's best friend and an absolute nut job by the name of Sean Eckhart, orchestrated the attack. The following day, Eckhart absolutely fell apart during questioning and confessed to everything. He told the FBI that the month prior, Jeff had approached him about taking care of Nancy so that Tanya would have an easier path to the Olympics. The men knew that they were too close to Tanya to carry out the attack themselves. It was too risky. So Eckhart offered the job to his friend Derek Smith. Derek was way too good of a person to attack Ice Princess Nancy Kerrigan, so instead he just gave the job to his nephew, Shane Stant, and offered to be his getaway driver. <laughs> I won't do it, but my nephew will do it and I'll drive him to and from. So, like, okay. 
The men followed Nancy to Boston in December, where she was practicing at Troy Kent Stadium with the intention of carrying out the attack there. But there were some scheduling issues. They couldn't find the stadium. By the time they found the stadium, she had already left to head for Detroit. Just a big clusterfuck. So they couldn't get to Nancy. They scrapped that plan, and they followed her to Detroit instead. Gululi and Eckhart paid Shane Stant, a 22-year-old from Hawaii, $6,500 to slice Nancy's Achilles tendon. When May proposed that plan, Stant was like, no, no, I, I'm not a slicer and dicer, um, but I will take this police baton and bash her fucking kneecaps. So, yeah. He was told to make sure he got her right knee, which was her landing knee. So on January 6th, he attended the practice at Kobo Arena back before things like security were taken seriously and everyone could could just kind of like go where they wanted all willy-nilly. You remember that? Uh, He said he stood directly behind the news crew that was there recording the practice so that he wouldn't ever be in their camera shot. He waited for them to stop filming, which they did when Nancy disappeared behind that partition. And then he followed Nancy into the corridor ran up from behind her with his police baton and sliced downward toward her knee as hard as he could, catching the back of her right leg just above the bend of her knee. As she crumpled to the ground in pain, he raced for the nearest exit. When he found the glass door locked, he simply smashed his way through it, then got into his uncle's car and the two sped away. In addition to quite literally knocking out the competition, The men hoped that the fear brought on by the attack would lead to more athletes hiring Sean Eckhart for security, which would allow him to build a security empire, which, of course, he would hire Derek Smith and Shane Stamp for. So they did this for $6,500 cash and the promise of getting a job protecting Olympic athletes, essentially. So Sean Eckhart, the bodyguard, and Derek Smith, the getaway driver, were arrested on January 12th, six days after the attack. Shane Stant, the whacker, was arrested the following day. And suddenly, the worldwide chatter went from, LOL, I bet Tanya was behind it, to, holy fuck, Tanya was behind it. On January 19th, less than two weeks after the attack, Tanya Harding's ex-husband was arrested as well, removing any doubt that Tanya was involved. But to what extent? According to a statement she made after Jeff's arrest, she only learned of the plot against Nancy after it was carried out and was not involved in any way with the planning. Jeff Galuli, Sean Eckhart, Derek Smith, and Shane Stant all told a different story, however. Their stories, which were all pretty in sync, all included Tanya in some way. She went to some of the meetings, provided them with Nancy's schedule, complained that it wasn't being handled quickly enough. Every single one of the men had some sort of interaction with Tanya that made it clear she was in on the plan. Of course she was. Of course she was. I don't even know why that was a question, but, you know, proof, law, all that. Uh, But the FBI wasn't sure that they had a strong enough case to arrest her just yet. Meanwhile, the Olympics were approaching fast. They were scheduled to begin on February 12th, and we're at the end of January here. The U.S. Figure Skating Association absolutely wasn't going to still send T-Hard to the Olympics, right? Like, there was no way. They didn't want to. But while Tanya wasn't paying her rent and clearly wasn't spending big bucks on her hair, makeup, or clothes, she somehow had the cash to hire a high-profile attorney who threatened to sue the association for $25 million if they prevented Tanya from going to the Olympics. She hadn't been charged with any crime, and she earned her spot on the team. So Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding traveled to the 1994 Winter Olympics in Lillehammer, Norway, together. They practiced together, and they competed against one another for Olympic gold. Funny story. The first practice in Norway, there were obviously like a zillion reporters there just waiting for the moment that Nancy and Tanya crossed paths on the ice, which was inevitable. Nancy intentionally 
wore that same white practice dress that she had on the day she was attacked. 14-year-old me watched the ladies' single competition when it aired, along with pretty much every living person on the planet with access to network television. And I watched it again in a documentary the other day, and honey, let me tell you, much like that T-Swift concert, it was a religious experience. While sending T-Hard to the Olympics while she was under investigation by the FBI definitely seemed like the wrong thing to do, it was absolutely the right move because it couldn't have gone any worse for her. Sure, it sucked for the skater that would have taken her place had she been disqualified, which was 13-year-old Michelle Kwan, by the way, but it was what was meant to happen. Michelle was there the day that Nancy was attacked, standing just feet away. She took second behind Tanya Harding at Nationals, but it wasn't her turn yet. She was still just a little baby skater. She went to the next two Winter Olympics in 1998 and 2002. She won silver in 98 and bronze in 02. Just like Christy Yamaguchi had to retire before the Nancy Kerrigan-Tanya Harding drama could unfold, that story had to reach its super fucking satisfying conclusion before Michelle Kwan could have the Ice Princess crown, which she then held for many, many years. So I'm going to give you a list of things I want you to watch here in a bit, but if you watch nothing else, go watch Nancy and Tanya's performances at the 94 Olympics. Even if you watch them when they happened, watch them again now as, as a fully grown adult. So Nancy went on first, and she was fucking immaculate. It was quite literally like watching a real-life fairy tale unfold. It was the absolute best performance of her career and so emotional, so beautiful. Like, I cried when I watched it the other day, and I've got goosebumps thinking about it again now. Much like Tom Holland's performance of Umbrella on Lip Sync Battle, this is now a clip that I will always know I can go and watch when I need a little pick-me-up. Like, that's how... That's how moving it was. The only thing that could have possibly made it any better was what happened when it was Tanya's turn. Now I'm telling you, if you don't believe in karma or like the universe working in ways we'll never understand, this will change your mind. Whereas Nancy Kerrigan got the fairy tale ending she absolutely deserved, Tanya Harding got the best Disney cartoon villain send-off I have ever ever seen. So they call her name, right? And she just doesn't come out. This is the fucking Olympics, not the pickup line at Starbucks. The Olympics is calling her name and she's just not there. So they start a timer. Not sure what it was. Like, I don't know what the time limit was. Maybe probably a couple minutes, maybe five. Um, So now this clock is ticking away on the big screen while officials and news crews with cameras rolling are running all over the place looking for Tanya Harding. They find her sitting out on the floor in some hall surrounded by her team because apparently her laces broke when she was putting on her skates. Karma is a broken skate lace. Anyway, so they get the skate on her, they get her out on the ice, she's all flustered and sweaty and red-faced, and now she's got to put on an Olympic-worthy performance. And it is not that. It is a fucking disaster. She's all awkward and wobbly, the crowd is booing her, she falls. Uh, Then she has this complete meltdown, stops skating, starts crying. (laughs) Disaster, and I loved every second of it. Due to the issue with her skate lace, the judges give her a do-over. A do-over at the fucking Olympics? Get out of this town. She does do better the second time, still not great, and she winds up taking eighth overall. Now, here's the piss in your Cheerios for those of you who may not remember. Our Nancy didn't win the gold medal. She won silver behind that little cute-ass Oksana Bayul. Now, I thought Nancy should have won in 1994, and I thought it again when I watched it the other day, but what do I know about judging figure skating? Literally nothing. Nancy very clearly thought she should have run too, as some bombastic side-eye 
was caught in the photos and videos and a kind of snarky remark was picked up in a hot mic moment. And then there was another hot mic moment where they caught her calling her Disney parade corny. But like, here's the thing about hot mic moments. Unless someone is confessing to a murder a la Robert Durst or saying something like super racist or sexist or homophobic, who cares? We all talk shit. And if you try to tell me you never talk shit about anything or anyone, I'm going to call you a big fat liar. So we're not even going to talk about the Nancy Kerrigan hate that started after the Olympics because it's just fucking dumb. Okay, we all talk shit. She wasn't talking shit to anybody's face. She was saying things under her breath, not realizing that the mic she was wearing was going to pick that up. What we will talk more about is T-Hard. Because after her disastrous performance at the Olympics, she had to come back to the U.S. where everybody hated her and her only friends were all in jail and she was under investigation by the FBI. In July of 1994, Jeff Galuli pleaded guilty to racketeering and was sentenced to two years in jail. Sean Eckhart also pleaded guilty to racketeering. He was sentenced to 18 months. Derek Smith and Shane Stamp pleaded guilty to conspiracy to assault and were each also sentenced to 18 months. And little old T-Hard was eventually charged with conspiracy to hinder prosecution, to which she pled guilty in March of 1994. She was sentenced to three years of probation, 500 hours of community service, a $100,000 fine plus $10,000 in legal fees and $50,000 to the Special Olympics, and she was forced to resign from the U.S. Figure Skaters Association, which meant that she could no longer compete. No worries, though, because they were just waiting for her criminal case to wrap up before they imposed their sanctions. In June of 1994, she was banned from participating in U.S. Figure Skating Association events for life, whether as a skater or a coach, and was stripped of the gold medal she won at Nationals the day after Nancy's attack. Tanya never skated professionally again, but has tried her hand at pretty much everything else. She was a professional boxer for a while and did some professional wrestling as well. Honestly, both of those seem like a better fit for her than figure skating. She started a band, but they got booed off the stage during their first and only performance. She got married a couple more times. She actually did spend a little bit of time in jail after assaulting a boyfriend with a hubcap in 2000. She did some reality TV, some game shows, a season of Dancing with the Stars. And in 2011, she gave birth to her first and only child, a son she named Gordon. Today, Tanya lives a simple life in Vancouver, Washington with her husband and son, where she works as a painter and a deck builder. In 2017, the movie I, Tanya was released with Margot Robbie playing T-Hard herself, and if you haven't seen it, you absolutely must. As for Tanya's mother, she's still alive, but she and Tanya have been estranged for nearly two decades. Jeff Galuli, Tanya's first husband, only wound up serving about six months of his two-year sentence. After his release in 1995, he changed his name to Jeff Stone, and he married a woman by the name of Nancy Sharkey. The couple had two children together before they divorced in 2000. In 2005, Jeff's ex-wife died by suicide. Jeff married for a third time in 2012, and he and wife number three raised his two kids with wife number two, in Portland, Oregon, where they still live today. Sean Eckert, the bodyguard, served 14 months of his 18-month sentence and changed his name to Brian Sean Griffith after his release. He spent the next several years mixed up in shady business dealings and died of natural causes in 2007 at the age of 40. Derek Smith, the getaway driver, served his 18-month sentence and then moved to Montana where he slipped into anonymity and lives a quiet life, which is, I would imagine, pretty easy to do with a name like Derek Smith. I mean, there's got to be thousands of Derek Smiths in the world, right? Shane Stant, the whacker, served 15 months of his 18-month sentence. While in the joint, he found the Lord and is a born-again Christian. 
He now lives in California, where he works legally in the marijuana industry. As for our beloved Nancy, following the 1994 Olympics, Nancy retired from competition and went pro, doing shows like Ice Wars, Champions on Ice, Footloose on Ice. Uh, She did a season of Dancing with the Stars, which was not on ice, could you imagine? In 1995, she married her agent, Jerry Solomon, her first and so far only husband. Together, they have three kids. Matthew was born in 1996. Brian was born in 2005. And Nicole was born in 2008. In 2004, Nancy was inducted into the United States Figure Skating Hall of Fame. She's done like some hosting gigs, some correspondence gigs, some documentaries, some cameos but for the most part, is just raising her kids and living her best life. It's not all good times, though, because shockingly, the one piece of murder that is attached to this entire twisted story comes from the Kerrigan camp. In January of 2010, a really unfortunate event occurred at the Kerrigan home. Um, Nancy's father, 70-year-old Daniel, got into an altercation with Nancy's brother, Mark, who was 46, and according to police, very inebriated at the time. What started as an argument over use of a phone turned into a physical altercation, which resulted in Mark putting his hands around his father's neck and taking him down to the ground. Daniel Kerrigan subsequently had a heart attack and died there on the floor fighting with his drunken son. So Mark was originally charged with manslaughter. He was acquitted on those charges, but he was convicted of assault and battery and sentenced to two and a half years in jail. For whatever it's worth, uh, Nancy and her mother stood behind Mark. They didn't want him to go to jail, according to them. Daniel was very, very ill. And yes, the two men got into a scuffle, but it was not one that would have caused death or any sort of injury uh, in a healthy person. Daniel was not healthy. He had coronary artery disease, and any sort of little excitement like that could have resulted in his death like this one did. Um, you know, they gave statements saying, you know, Mark loved our father very much. Our father loved Mark. This was not indicative of their relationship. Um, but yeah, two and a half years in jail for assault and battery, Nancy Kerrigan's brother, which I don't, I missed that completely somehow. I never knew that. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a, kind of a weird twist to end things on. I'm sure that more accurate updates on where everyone is and how everyone's doing will be forthcoming soon because the 30th anniversary of the whack heard around the world is just a few months away. And that, <laughs> that's the wildest part of all. Um, and that is the wild story of the role Detroit played in one of the greatest scandals in sports history. Only in Michigan, I swear. A full list of resources is available upon request, but my main source for this episode was the documentary Nancy and Tanya, which is available on Peacock. So we're going to watch that. We're going to watch I, Tanya, if we haven't. And regardless of how many times we may have seen Nancy and Tanya's performances at the 1994 Winter Olympics, we're going to go watch those again because it's required. Now, enough about T-Hard. I promised you a T-Swift story, right? So... Um, first and foremost, let me just say very emphatically, like Taylor is an amazing performer. It was a beautiful, beautiful show. The problem was all me. <laughs> all me. So I don't really like giant crowds. I stopped going to really big concerts a long time ago um, because I just... I have like a physical, like sensory overload, feel like I'm going to die, panic attack reaction. I wouldn't have gone to probably any other concert, any big stadium concert like that. I don't do them anymore, but it was Taylor Swift, of course, I'm going. So 
setting myself up for failure right from the beginning. And I went alone. Like, I don't know if having someone with me would have made things better or or worse, but I was alone, me and 60,000 plus other Swifties. The show started. I got all emotional. I might have cried a little bit. I don't know if I did actually cry. Maybe I just thought about crying. Um, But it was beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And then the panic attack, sensory overload, possibly a heart attack, it felt like one, set in. And we're not even 45 minutes into a three-hour-long Taylor Swift show, and I am feeling like I've got to leave. I, I can't stay here. I had really good seats, though, which is wonderful for watching the show, not wonderful for trying to get like up and out of the venue. So I spent a good portion, I spent a good portion of the show sitting down while literally everyone else was standing. So I couldn't even really see Taylor. I could only see her on the screen, which again, had I been standing like everyone else, I would have been able to see her perfectly because I had really good seats. But um, I'm sitting during the Taylor Swift concert. It's not even 45 minutes into it. It's three hours long, her set alone. So there's still a long way to go. Uh, And I'm trying to figure out how to get up to where the staff is because I genuinely feel like I need help. That's how bad I felt. That's how like severe this panic attack was. But the thing was, I just kept thinking like, okay, let's say I do make it past all these people and up all these steps and I ask for help. I tell them what's going on. They're going to want me to go to the hospital. And there is no way on Hank Green's planet that I am going to an emergency room in Detroit during the Taylor Swift show. So I did all my like little calm yourself down routines that I've learned over the years. And eventually like the panic attack mostly subsided. I I still didn't feel well. Like I was not on for sure. Um, But I was able to then, you know, like stand back up and sing some songs and enjoy the show. Got to sing the 10 minute version of All Too Well with Taylor, which is really all a girl can want in life. And then we're hitting like the two hour mark, right? So there's I've watched two hours of Taylor Swift Live. There's still an hour to go. And I'm just thinking like, I'm barely hanging on because we're all in our seats here. When it's time to go, I'm going to fall right over that edge again. When we're all crowded together, when everybody's trying to get out, when we're stuck, when we can't move, I'm going to lose my shit again. So I actually left the show early, which I know, like shocking, right? I left a little around 10, um, and the show was ending at 11. So I made it a little past two hours, and then I was like, I'm, I got to go. I'm out of here. So I leave, and it was sad. It was a hard choice to make, and it was sad, but it was absolutely the correct choice because I have since seen TikToks of the scene of people trying to leave, and yet, no, I, w- I would have died. I would have had a heart attack and died. So um, I made the right choice. I walk out. There's security blocking all these little teenage girls that are standing at the barricades, scream singing, because even though they said you would not be able to hear Taylor from Ford Field because it's a closed venue, you could absolutely still hear her outside and there's people everywhere singing and listening. So um, I tell a security guard, oh, this was the other thing. So I stayed at Motor City Casino because they advertised a shuttle to Ford Field, which my arthritic knees definitely was going to need after standing for that many hours. This shuttle dropped us off still a 15 minute walk away from Ford Field. Like, are you fucking kidding me? That's not a shuttle to Ford Field. That's a, it was literally halfway. I looked it up on the map from Motor City Casino to Ford Field. The shuttle dropped us off directly in the middle, which was still a 15 minute walk. Bullshit. So I really didn't think I could make it that far. I wasn't feeling good. My knees were killing me. Um, So I approached this security guard and I asked her where I could find, like, where an Uber could come pick me up. Because obviously an Uber can't just pull up to the front of Ford Field. It's all blocked off. So she directs me down to this, like, nearby street corner. I go down there. I don't even have the Uber app on my phone, okay? I've never taken an Uber before. Um, So I'm trying to download the Uber app. And my phone loses connectivity. 
completely. It's got a battery. It's not the battery. It just probably because there were so many people all in this one place. I don't know. I turn it off. I turn it back on. No fucking connectivity on my cell phone in downtown Detroit. And yes, there was people, but the whole point of me leaving the show early was to avoid the crowds and I was successful. So there, there wasn't like big crowds everywhere. There was some people, but not like, yeah, it wasn't a good idea. So my phone's not working. I can't call anybody. I can't call an Uber. I can't uh, even look at the map that'll get me back to this shuttle location 15 minutes from the venue. So I just start walking at 1030 at night by myself in downtown Detroit towards the direction that I think this shuttle should probably hopefully be. And again, it's not like, you know, empty streets. There's definitely people and stuff, but not not in a way that I felt super safe. So I'm walking. I see a police officer. I ask him for help. He pulls up his phone, which is connected just fucking fine. I tell him where I'm trying to get. He's really bad with directions. It turns out he sends me in the complete wrong way. I can tell I'm now going the wrong way, but I'm so turned around at this point. I don't even know where the right way is. And my phone still will not get service. My new phone, this is like a new model phone. I have AT&T. It's not like, you know, oh, anyway. So I'm walking in the dark alone, downtown Detroit, and I'm seeing cars, but they're mostly like those private cars and limos and like definitely T-Swift's friends, like Blake Lively and Flavor Flav and Dua Lipa were all there the night that I was there, which was kind of cool. Um, and then I see a cab, a yellow like yellow taxi cab with the light on top, not like someone with a taxi magnet slapped on the side of their car, like an actual taxi, right? And the guy makes eye contact with me, and he's like, you need a ride? He's like, yes, I do need a ride. And he opens the door. I get in, and he's like, you have cash? And I said, actually, I don't. Ford Field is cashless now. If you didn't know that, now you do. You're welcome. Um, I said, actually, I don't. Can you take Venmo or my card? I, there, I couldn't have paid him through Venmo because my fucking phone still wasn't working. But I did have my debit card. And he's like, I take you to ATM. And before I can even protest and say, like, no, thank you, um, he zips off into traffic. He's zipping down these side streets, which I get. Like, that's what taxi drivers do. They know the city. They know the the little secret routes, right, the hacks, the traffic hacks. But he's zipping down these side streets and these back roads and through these alleys. And I look at his, again, this is a real taxi. So he's got that like screen where you enter in your fare and it like runs the meter and all of that. No fare entered. So he has not entered my ride in his system. We arrive at this like sketchy looking bank where it's one of those ones where you walk through the front set of doors and there's an ATM, and then you would walk through the next set of doors to get into the bank if it was open. But of course it wasn't, because at this point it's getting close to 11. So uh, I get out, I'm going towards the ATM, and he's like, I come with you to make sure nobody bothers you. And so now I'm in this little, like, essentially what's the size of a phone booth with this stranger who's hovering over me as I'm using an ATM in downtown Detroit. <gasps> Keith Morrison taught me so much better than this, but here I was anyway. So I get the money. We go back out to his car. Instead of opening the back door, which is where I had been sitting, he opens the front door and he's like, you sit in front now. I was like, what the fuck? And honestly, I'm so disappointed in myself because I just had no fight left. I just looked at him and I was like, if I die, I die, right? Whatever. I don't even care anymore. And I just get in the front of the fucking taxi with this weird guy. He was weird. So we're back in the car. He still doesn't enter the fucking fair. It still says that he has no passenger on his screen. Again, with the back roads and the alleys. I don't know where we are. I don't know where the Motor City Casino is. 
I don't know if we're going towards the Motor City Casino or towards the Detroit River where he's going to dump my body after he's robbed and murdered me. I've got to the, to give myself just like the tiniest bit of credit, I've got like a death grip on my purse and I've got my hand on the unlock button. I'm ready to unlock, push that door open and duck and roll if I need to. And I really felt like I was about to need to when this fucking man turned down a road with no streetlights that was very clearly a dead end. Like, I almost vomited. I was sure that this was the end for me. Um, I mean, it would have made like a good story, right? True crime podcaster gets murdered at Taylor Swift concert. Imagine those headlines. Uh... Maybe Taylor would have even come to my funeral. Who knows? So yeah, I'm like, okay, this is it. He's going to kill me. And then he goes, oh, wrong one, and zips around. So he just turned down this dead end by mistake, and he does a UE and pulls back out onto the road. And my heart is still pounding. He is, I'm not kidding you. You in town alone, ma'am? Where your husband, ma'am? Never tell anyone that you're alone, even if you're very clearly alone. Um, I decided on the fly real quick that it did not make sense for Dax to not be with me if I was in downtown Detroit. So I was like, oh, my husband's actually just waiting for me to call him as soon as I get back to the hotel. And my friends are already at the hotel waiting. So I tell him that I've got people waiting at the hotel for me and my husband waiting for me to call him. Never tell someone you're alone. (laughs) That's like the one right choice I made that night. Um, and so he's still just kind of, you know, in, in hindsight, trying to make small talk. Right. But I was like every red flag, every red flag. Uh, and then all of a sudden we're pulling up in front of Motor City Casino and he's like, you have good night, (gasps) ma'am. You guys, I really thought I was going to get murdered at a Taylor Swift concert and who, Could that possibly ever happen to besides me? (laughs) Anyway, this episode is way too long. Way too long. You get me talking about Taylor Swift and we'll be talking for hours. So uh, we're going to wrap it here. Make sure that you're following me on all of the socials. A new episode of Violent Ends is coming your way in a couple of weeks. And until then, keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks. 